Thank you for that song. Thank you of the opening this morning. You know, we we have a service here every Sunday morning. We're at nine o'clock. We start, and someone like Eldon and some others get up and lead singing, and then we have the service, various parts of it, and a main message, some testimonies, and and it's essential. It's necessary to have a service that is part part of God's plan, part of our tradition, and it's a blessing, but it's a lot more than that. (laughs) The community, the fellowship, I really appreciate here. I know at some churches, and maybe they have community other places, but at some churches you, when the church goes, the service is done, ten minutes later most people are gone. That's not the case here. A lot of visiting. Then the second message after David's message by John. <laughs> yeah. We we have drifted. There's a there's a reason why some communities resisted modern technology like the automobile and the telephone and so on because it it militated against uh, the close-knitness of a community and it does i think of that man on the phone that was on the bus that was he was he, he was part of a community he was using a phone he was driving a bus you can still have community even in those situations <laughs> but um we have a lot of things that militate against that. Lots of things. So, I think we could go home <laughs> with that. For uh, the message this morning, I'm going to go back to First Peter, and uh, where I was missing a few times for something else for other other uh, topics. But we're going to go back to First Peter chapter four. And we'll have the first six verses. That's where going to be the text this morning. And I'm trying to give a little bit of context because we've been away from it for quite a while. Um, Peter is, you know, he's he was the out, outspoken disciple of the Lord Jesus. I would, I'll look forward to meeting with Peter someday. <laughs> Besides Jesus, was there anyone else that we know of that walked on water? <laughs> He's an unusual individual, Peter. It's unusual in a lot of ways. Um, of course, he denied the Lord, but he was restored and all that. But then, he, then uh, later on in his life, the Lord told him, feed my sheep. And then... And he did that, and then he wrote us these scriptures here. And they are precious. Did you realize these came from that man that went through all those experiences and yet had the Spirit of God on him? Um, Three reoccurring themes in Peter's letter that I thought I would bring out this morning 
to give us a little bit of a context, and it actually is going to apply to the message this morning. There are these three reoccurring themes are a lived-in reality to the to the people, to the Christians he was writing to. Uh, number one, you will find this theme, an absolute call to holiness. That is a theme in First Peter. And uh, I'll just read a few verses in First Peter 1. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. And that's just a few verses. We could multiply that out of there. Number two, an ungodly populace in the world. That's another theme that you see in here. And and you 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 get that when you you know they were immersed these early Christians were immersed in an ungodly culture, which is where you get the whole idea of the strangers and pilgrim concept. And that is a theme that you have Christians who are living for God, and then you have an unholy populace. And I'm going to expand on that contrast. All they're going to say, uh, there's... There's three enemies that we have, you know, the, the, the flesh, our flesh. <laughs> then we have the world, and that's what we're talking about right now. And then we have the devil, which is behind all of that. And I'm going to talk about the flesh and the devil, uh, the flesh and the world this morning mostly. But you have one, the absolute call to holiness. Number two, an ungodly populace in the world, or you could expand that. You have that in the context of enemies, that holiness. And then number three. It's a contact the suffering that comes because of the tension between those first two points. Holiness, enemies, and then you have that tension, which actually erupts in persecution many times. Uh, it's like a hot air mass and a cold air mass that when they collide, there's going to be Friction. There's something's going to happen when there's cold air and a hot air mass. Um, sometimes it's minor. Sometimes it's major. And it's not always possible to predict what's going to happen. Is it going to be a, a, a hailstorm? Is it going to be a thunderstorm? Going to be wind? Is it going to be a tornado? And where is it going to happen? You don't always know. But when you have this collision of warm and cold air, you will have this tension and these storms develop. And so that is actually what it is. The conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, it, it always has its flashpoints. It has its areas that, of conflict. And it varies. It's not always the same. And you can't always say where it's going to be. But it, it is. And then there's something today that Peter and his audience actually don't have. At least they didn't have it fleshed out institutionally. That is uh, a, a compromising church. Um, 
that wasn't hadn't been developed at that time. Now there was there was there was heresies and there was there was some of that going on already. But as far as institutionally, it wasn't fleshed out. So we actually have that today that they didn't. But the goal of the popular church today is not holiness. It's it's other things. It could be happiness or self help or fulfillment or various number of things that you can put behind there. If the goal of a church, and I'm, I, I, I'm speaking, I haven't thought this thing through, but one of the goals of the church <laughs> has to be true holiness, which is a, a, a following after in the spirit of God after the commandments of God. And if, if there's a church that has no emphasis on that, it's not, it's not a church that's healthy. So, Peter sees himself and his people as strangers and pilgrims here in the world. And he pushes his utmost for those people to be righteous and holy. But that will increase the conflict. Doesn't matter. Holiness is the rule. It's the norm. The world, being who it is, is going to have issues with some of that. They are intolerant. <laughs> not only may they do their do they want to do their sin, but they you may not oppose them in their sin. But let's read first six verses of First Peter here, chapter four, and then we'll expound on it. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So the first two verses there, for as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Arm yourselves. There you get the picture of arm. <laughs> a soldier who puts equipment on and prepares himself for battle. Our attitudes are our weapons. And weak or wrong attitudes will lead us to defeat. See, what did it say there? Christ has suffered in the flesh for us. Arm yourself likewise. <laughs> the example of Christ. <clears throat> At Tim's house, 
on Wednesday night, I heard a young man give his testimony and a little bit of dismay. Something like this. He said, I thought if I become a Christian, I would be happy. (laughs) I would be victorious. Life would be easy. Instead, my battles and my struggles increased. Is that what we heard there? Uh, some of you who were there, is that sort of what we heard? <laughs> there were some others here that were there. So you have someone who repented of his sin, he's trusted the Lord, but entered into an arena of battle that was not expected. It's sort of unexpected. And and there was a certain amount of dismay there. And then I was there, and I could say, you know what? I went through that too. <laughs> I remember as a young Christian, I had, you know, give myself unreservedly to the Lord, believed on the Lord, and this was, this was I was all in. This was going to be my life. There was no going to be no turning back. The Lord has my life. Good. I'm going to love him, serve him. And I had periods of joy and peace. I did. Praise the Lord. But then a battle, and that battle was larger than I expected. And I was dismayed many, many times as well. I don't know if you can if you can relate to that. I'm sure you can. But I'm here to say that that struggle, the battle, you want to say the suffering, is a good thing because when it is faced right, it achieves very precious things because it actually achieves righteousness and godliness. Because what do we say here? He that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. There's a concept here. We could say, he that has lots of joy and lots of peace ceases from sin. That's not what it says, does it? <laughs> right, right. Earlier I said having a right attitude and a right understanding is very important to be holy. And here is one of them. Um, Suffering, born in faith, frees us from the power of sin. That is actually one way to look at it. The resolve to bear, to suffer patiently according to the will of God, that brings us victory. So we live in a reality of two worlds. We live in this two worlds that are constantly colliding with each other. And, and we cannot live in both worlds. We live in one or the other. Two worlds, two worlds, one or the other. You're either a friend of God or you are an enemy of God. You're either aligned with the world or you are seriously at odds with it. 
There is no neutral ground. Jesus made that really, really clear. You cannot serve two masters. If you are not at odds with the world, and we'll talk a little bit more some of the things that they, they are in, then you are at odds with God. But we as Christians are in a... Yeah, yeah, okay, I'm going ahead of myself a little bit. God actually did create a world, and he created it how it should function. He told us how it, how it is to function, not, not the way that uh, sin has then... Um, Sin has marred the world, <laughs> it has, but he still has told us how to function in this world. He told us how to align ourselves with the way God made the world. Not in the way that sin wrecked the world, but the way God made the world. And we are in the process of being restored, like Romans 12 says, that the renewal of our minds so that we might know what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. That is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God is the alignment with God that he wants us to to live in that reality. And it's a process. But this alignment from where we were to where God wants us to be creates struggles. It causes distress because, and we'll talk about it later, about our past life. We've had a past life. My flesh used to do this sin. And and it, but it and it wants to continue in it, but my renewed mind says, "No, God, you have w- uh, your way in my life." And so there is a battle. What is in pursuit here? Well, it's holiness, it's alignment with God and His will for me. Matthew five six gives that gives that. Um, Pursuit, pursuit in the, in the Beatitudes. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. <laughs> there's that pursuit. There's a hunger. There's a thirst. It's for something. It's pursuing it. For they shall be filled. Hungering and thirst. The, the analogy just fills out. And Christ lived his life in alignment with his father. He denied himself the pleasures of life that conflicted with his father's will. And he gave himself sacrificially for others. And this alignment, Christ's alignment with God's will, it culminated in the cross. But he was a man of sorrows, the Bible says. He was acquainted with grief. He suffered he denied himself a lot long before he came to the cross. The cross was the, the bitterest part of his life. It for sure was. But that, there was suffering ahead of that. And that he is our example. And that's why he says, He that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Romans says there, we could go, I just didn't take the time, but you go the whole way down Romans 6. But I'll just read a few verses. 
verse 2, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Talking about, we're putting an emphasis on death. There's a death that needs to happen in our life. And this death is identification with Christ, which is right in, in context here. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Verse 11, likewise reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in Galatians 5.24, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. So there is a battle with the flesh. The habits of the old life, or, the or for just the habits of the old life, or even if you're a Christian, the desire for new pleasure. Uh, to get whatever dopamine high, is, whatever dopamine high is the one that tempts you, there's that temptation for that. And whatever shape or form it takes, which is outside of God's will. But if you notice here in this scripture, there is no allowance given for compromise. Suffering and denial are pathways to what? Well, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. And I thought of Moses here. I'm going to read a few verses in Hebrews, and then we'll talk a little bit about Moses, what he experienced. But uh, here's the scripture in Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. By Moses... When he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the approach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Everything I said so far is almost encapsulated in this here. <laughs> Moses, he was the adopted daughter of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. So he was in the royal family. He's probably on the pathway to the throne. We don't know for sure, but it's very possible he was on the pathway to the throne of Egypt. And and when Moses went before Pharaoh after he was called there in the burning bush and he went back to Egypt, it's very possible he knew that Pharaoh. It may even have been a family. I don't know. I, we don't know. But it could have been him on the throne rather than that other Pharaoh when he went back. But he rejected that he rejected that whole royalty and that throne and the entire culture <clears throat> now you could think a while now how, how did that happen when he, when he went out there to rescue his people what what was going on in his mind when it was coming aware but you know it, it says there in in exodus that he killed this egyptian and then pharaoh was angry so he fled so he fled, but here it says he chose, <laughs> he chose rather to suffer affliction. So 
is somehow in that context there was a choices made by him that that cut him off from the royal family. Now, God in his mercy sometimes makes things that happen that actually propel us a little. He was actually propelled to leave. And God does that to us sometimes. Sometimes we are a little bit hesitant. We're not quite moving, and God sends something, and, and we move. Well, he moved. But he chose. He chose. And he fled. Now, how do you think this acquainted with royalty man fared out there in the backside of the desert, out there in Midian, out there with the shepherd, out there with another culture that was probably nomadic or I don't know exactly. He was used to royalty. He was used to servants. He was used to food, whatever you had. And now, primitive shepherd life. You think that was a step up? (laughs) Living in tents or huts or whatever they had, exposed to the elements. They probably had droughts. They probably had difficult times. He was deprived of all the gaiety of the plays and the concerts and whatever they had in Egypt, deprived of all that. All the luxury. Do you think he missed it? Moses had a past life, and then Moses had a new life, just like Christians have a past life, and then they have a new life. But the new life was not one of glory and ease. Not for Moses, it wasn't. It was a one of chosen hardship and suffering. It was one of hard work, deprivation, in comparison to his old life. So one thing we must grasp, though, is that suffering, whatever form it takes in our life, it's temporal. You can go through all of Hebrews 11, not just Moses. They suffered temporally for eternal reward. The suffering that we have here probably won't last longer than 70 years. For Moses, it was 80, (laughs) to be exact. But our suffering is temporal. So you choose. You choose God's way and holiness and righteousness, and it brings hardship in your life. And you embrace that. You have to realize this, this hardship is temporal. It's going to have a reward. We need to, we need to arm ourselves with the right mind. We will not understand why we are suffering many times. And so a wrong question to ask would be, what good can possibly come out of this? That's not a very good question to ask. Maybe we're not meant to understand But if God sees it fit to allow it, then maybe we should trust him. For all things, for we know, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. Verse 3. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, 
revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Our past life was enough. Now, Peter writes to an audience as if everyone was a convert. (laughs) Imagine that. No one is born a Christian. If you're not a convert, you're not a Christian. That's what it means to be born again. When you're born again, truly born again, then you are a Christian. Our past life. We all have past lives and past regrets. If you were older before you were saved, you have more past regrets than maybe someone who was younger. You have more of a past life and you have more past regrets. I'd like to say one thing. Our past life is not a glorious testimony. (laughs) What is glorious is what God has done to save me. And if he saves someone who has been extremely wicked and sinful and debauched and in whatever sins or however, however down in the sin or however high up into sin he was, <laughs> the glory doesn't go to the past life. The glory goes to the Lord who saved that person. And uh, no one should ever glamorize in their past sinful life. It's a shame to even speak of those things done in secret, Paul says there in Ephesians. And here is uh, that verse in the paraphrase. You have had enough in the past of the evil thing that godless people enjoy. Their immorality and lust, their feastings and drunkenness and wild parties and their terrible worship of idols. Paul, he spoke frankly. And it's 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 both a commendation and a warning to the Corinthians. Well, maybe you could turn there, um, be a blessing. First Corinthians nine. First Corinthians six verses nine to eleven. He's commending, and he's warning the Corinthians. Talk about our past life. Do you know? Do you, do you not? Know that the ungodly, unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexual, immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here to commendation, and such were some of you, but you are were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And I like that. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that justified us. It's the Spirit of Christ that sanctifies us. <laughs> both, both in there. But here's the point. Your flesh has had enough time given to it. That's the point of this verse. The flesh should have had none at all, but it did. In your past life, your flesh had it. Maybe 
Yeah, maybe. Not maybe. Even now in your life, <laughs> there's flesh in your life. It's, it doesn't, I don't know if I wrote it down. Uh, we are not debtors to, I know it's in Romans 8. We are not debtors to this flesh. <laughs> it, we owe nothing to it, but it tries to get us to think we owe it something. But we don't. It had enough. God has a right to the rest of our time. Let's look back on our wasted years and give no more precious time to serve the corruptible flesh. So you are done with it. So it costs you. It costs battles, fights, and distresses. But remember this. Suffering born in faith frees us from the power of sin. Verse 4. Wherein, since you are now (laughs) turning away from the flesh and all those wicked sins are at list, I decided not to go into those sins of the flesh. I decided not to really go into that. Wherein they, your former friends, think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Those are the sinners, the unconverted. Those who are okay with the world being upside down as it is. They're okay with that. What we can get from this is unregenerate men love their sin. And if you leave them or you come to them in their sin, you disturb their illusion. illusion. I think that's got just illusion. <laughs> their idea of what, what they're, they're, they have a, mas- a facade up and they like it the way it is. And when someone leaves them or someone comes to them, you disturb that. They don't like that. As a, as a whole, as a whole, they do not want to hear it. And, and we need to reckon that when we talk to sinners, people who are sinners, reckon this is generally the case. And there's an exception to that, and you can't put all the people. But picture with me a child that has some food on his plate that he doesn't want to eat. You've never seen that, right? (laughs) Now, you can talk to this child. You can explain to the child how good this food is. I like it. It's it's good. It'll it'll help you grow. It has these vitamins, this broccoli and this lettuce or whatever they don't want to eat. It has these vitamins in it, and it has these minerals in it. It'll make you grow. It'll make you big and strong, and you can talk and talk. You can talk and you can talk. But what's the problem? The problem is not an intellectual problem. The problem is, I don't want that food. He doesn't want to eat it. Issue is not an intellectual issue. (laughs) In this case, it's maybe emotional. I'm not sure. Sure. 
makes no difference. That little boy or girl may know that the food is good for him. He knows, but he doesn't care because he doesn't want it. So is the sinner. He loves his sin. He doesn't want to quit. You may, you may, by either your testimony or you may speak to him about his sin, but he won't like your witness because you are disturbing him. And if we go and we could do a full study of Romans 1. Romans 1 talks about this the most, about how the Gentile sinner, how they suppress the truth. It comes to them, but, and they have the truth. And, and to, I think in some fundamental way, it actually resonates with them. They actually know, like maybe that child in that chair might actually know, yeah, this food is good for me, but it makes no difference because I don't want it. In a fundamental way, a sinner knows, but he suppresses the truth. Because he enjoys his sin. So he pushes the truth away like a child pushing a plate away that doesn't want to eat. Now, unlike a child not eating a food, sinners have very, very good intellect. They can think. They have a moral problem, not an intellectual problem. Their problem, according to Romans 1, is they refuse to glorify God as God, and they refuse to thank God and they refuse to be thankful. So they refuse to be thankful because when you thank somebody, for, when you thank somebody for something, it's, you're recognizing some kind of indebtedness to them. They have done something to you, and they don't like to do that as well. Rebellion causes intellectual darkness. The refusal of unbelievers to believe is not a lack of arguments like a child, not a lack of argument. There are very good, solid, firm arguments for the existence of God, for the truth of the Bible, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's not the problem. All those things may help some to accept it, but that's not the main problem. Evidence is not the main problem. It's their refusal to acknowledge or hear the arguments. So the disobedient will search out arguments that will justify them in their disobedience. But it's interesting when you when you have an idol, any kind of any kind of th- anything in your life that you put above God, you actually eventually lose your ability <laughs> to enjoy it. So if you give yourself to gluttony, eventually you'll lose the ability to enjoy that food. It has a diminishing effect. If you are given to a lustful, licentious lifestyle, you eventually lose the ability to enjoy that. 
Anything you place, put in the place of God, anything you worship, you will eventually lose that thing. And here's what's happening today. If you place reason and intellect in the place of God, and you use reason and intellect to chart your way through this world, you eventually will lose your mind. (laughs) Follow with me a little bit. There's a certain element of people in this country who have lost their mind. They no longer can think factually about normal things. They can't even reason factually. They're disconnected from truth. And it would be hilarious some of the things they do if it wouldn't be so destructive and so... uh, Threatening, actually. So in Peter's day, they said, um, they speak evil of you because you don't go with them. That was in Peter's day, and that still is today as well. But there's another issue today, and this is a parallel issue that Peter probably didn't face uh, it's compromising Christians, I call them disobedient Christians, and you want to say Christians in quotations, I don't know how you want to handle all that. But if you are not a, if, you, if, you're, if you're not a dedicated Christian, in other words, Christ is first in your life, and what he says is first. If you're not that kind of a Christian, then you are a compromising Christian. And if you are progressive and enculturated and a blend-in-society type of Christian, you will look at a true Christian and say, they are weird. (laughs) They live that way. They don't go to Disney World. Um, they're narrow-minded. They dress strange. I was asked just last week, um, do your people have to marry Mennonites? (laughs) Don't you go on dating sites? (laughs) No. I hope not. (laughs) You don't drink? That's strange. They think you're strange, especially if you were one of them and you have left. They think you're strange. The world is evangelistic. And the world will not tolerate. The world is not tolerant unless you agree with their view of tolerance. They will not tolerate you bringing truth to them. Like Jesus We can be grieved and angry at the destruction they are peddling to the children, but we don't need to bring them into justice. We should be grieved. We should be, um, our, our, uh, we should be running rescue missions, so to speak, you know, in, in, in the, in there, but 
But we don't have to bring these people, these people who are uh, really doing all what a persecution, whatever. You actually don't have to bring them to justice because God is going to do that. That's what actually comes next. The person that is really ridiculing you will someday stand before God. So they are speaking evil of you. Who shall give account of him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? Everybody, I just heard Jim, Jim and Michelle, that's a neighbors to, um, to uh, Tim, Tim and Cheryl there in Lebanon. He, he says he wasn't scared of anything. He was, he was pretty high up in a very dark organization. And he did a lot of wicked things. He said he could tell he was in control of people. He could tell them, stand up, you stand up. He told them, you sit down, they could sit down. He said, go burn that house down, they go burn the house down. That's the kind of organization he was with. He was, he was in charge. He was in control. He's not scared of anything. He said, have bullets flying around him. He's not scared. Well, he smoked five packs of cigarettes a day for a number of years. His lungs are going bad. And he ends up in the hospital here a few months ago. And he was very low. And he said, I was scared. I was terrified. I was terrified. I knew I was going to stand before God, and I was scared. He came out of that hospital different than he went in. It's still a work in process. Everybody is going to stand before that judgment. <laughs> actually, God is going to judge all. He says here, the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. I'm not sure if that actually means when he comes back, those are still living and those who have died, uh, or it means that he's going to judge the Christians. Christians are going to receive judgment as well as far as their works. So I'm not quite sure. But, but know this, that everything you do for the Lord in that in that judgment, you're going to be awarded rewards for that. And everything we do, um, not done in purity, even as Christians, while we're not done it in purity, not done with pure motives, that's going to be burned up. So there's going to be that kind of judgment for the Christians. But what really is in context here is, um, is the unbeliever. That's the, that's the context. They will stand before that great white throne. They have refused to believe. They have refused to repent. They have hung on to their sins. And anyone who comes to them uh, varies, but some of them have persecuted the Christians. They're going to be, they will have to answer to that. Judgment after death is one of the most taught and settled doctrines in the scripture. <laughs> you, you, you cannot bypass this doctrine. Think of it. When people die, and you, you, uh, you, you have a loved one, and all, all of us had loved ones who died, and, and they're, 
they're passed away, and then they're, then you see them in the coffin. They're, they're not there anymore. And where, where are they? That has the thing that has humanity has grappled with for eons. What happens to us after we die? Somehow we know that life is not the end. That person, that thinking, emotional, uh, feeling person that I knew and loved, they don't, it's clear, they just don't go away when they die. There's something eternal about mankind. We know that. And how would we know if God wouldn't have told us? But God has actually told us very clearly what will happen, what will happen to us, and, and how the judgment is going to go. It's, it's clear. We're not left in the dark at all. We aren't. Now, if you don't have the scripture and you're not being taught, there's people still in the dark. Those of us who know, who believe God know, those who don't believe God, they don't believe the scriptures, they might be exposed to it, but they don't at least come under it. It makes no difference because tearing up the road map is not going to tear out the road out there. It just won't work. Tearing up or disbelieving the scriptures makes no difference because God, and uh, I told this story before, and maybe you remember it, maybe you don't, about the two men in the concentration camp. This is in Germany, where the one was a Christian and the other was an atheist, and the atheists, they were both, they were both prisoners. And uh, they were mistreated, just just horribly treated by the guards. And I don't know if you know what, but you know, it, it goes against us. If someone mistreats you, it sort of goes against but if someone mistreats you with impunity, your scum and just that that even as a prisoner, even when you're on starvation diet, he, uh, he was just the atheist was just angry, and the Christian was able to tell him, "Well, according to what I believe, that that guard that is doing that to us or the guards, plural, they will face it. But according to your belief, he can do that and be scot free." But judgment is a good thing because life will eventually be fair. Life is not fair now, but eventually it will be exactly fair. So judgment is a good thing. I'm reading a few verses here in Revelation uh, 6, 9 to 11. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So, um, they were killed. They were treated unfairly. But they're saying, yeah, it's going to be taken care of. Just just wait. Just wait a little longer. It'll be, it'll be taken care of. How long? How long is it going to go on? Let's wait. It'll happen. So the unsaved may negatively judge us today. But one day, God will judge them. 
So instead of fighting them today, we should pray for them, knowing that the final judgment is with God. And that's the attitude that the Apostle Paul had, 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. God is going to judge. We don't need to settle the score here. We should reach out. So, verse 5 and 6 here in First Peter, Who shall give account of him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they may be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. The gospel preached to the dead? <laughs> really? There are a lot of interpretations of this verse, and I thought of Peter a little bit. Wasn't it Peter that said, Paul, some of your scriptures are hard to understand. <laughs> uh, you could turn it around and say, Peter, uh, here, here's one that's a little hard for me to understand. Peter did say that men twist the unclear scriptures, the Paul scriptures. He's saying that, who, uh, that some of Paul's letters are hard to understand, which unstable men rest, they twist to their own destruction. So, sure, you can get the scriptures to say whatever you want it to say. You can take it out of context. You can ignore some of it. You can change it into the translation. You can do whatever you want to do with the scripture. Whatever, however you want to twist them, it will be for your destruction. It will not benefit you. So, the thing we don't get from here is that there is a chance to get saved after death. I don't think that doctrine is here, but that is a doctrine that is taught out of this verse by some people. And could you see how twisting the scripture could negatively affect your life and bring people to destruction? Because you believe that, oh, I'll have another chance after I die. I'll get another chance. And then not come to the Lord while they're living. That's how you twist scripture to your own destruction. So we don't get that. I spent too much time trying to understand the meaning of this verse, so I'm just going to repeat one of my good commentaries in this last verse here. He says, verse 6 may be paraphrased this way. There are people now dead physically, but alive with God in the spirit, who were judged by the world, but they heard the gospel before they died, and they believed they suffered and died because of their faith, but they are living with God. It is better to suffer for Christ and to go, with, to go to be with God than to follow the world and to be lost. There is no suggestion of a second chance 
for the lost after death. I, um, like I said, it's the idea is the gospel is preached also to them who are now dead. That is the way it's taken. That they may be, then they were judged according to men in the flesh, but now they are living according to God in the spirit. They're living with God in the spirit. <clears throat> so here's the conclusion here. First two verses, for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Christ did not have an easy life, neither did Peter. If we acknowledge the fact that our commitment to God is going to bring hardship and suffering, if we accept that reality, then we will be armed, we will be equipped with adequate equipment to properly overcome sin. And so while we live here in this life, we will live for the will of God, not to the lust of men. The suffering is temporal, the rewards are eternal. So we stand for a word of prayer. Lord, you are our God who has redeemed us, given us this way to follow you. You are our deliverer. We have a part in this, Lord, we do, but you are our strength. It is your Holy Spirit which empowers us. Lord, I pray for each one here that you would grant us to be truly the kind of people that is pleasing to you. Lord, I also pray that with the recognition of the judgment that is coming, Lord, that we, each one of us, would take seriously that judgment to heart. You are a merciful God. You are a gracious God. You are a loving God. And you are also a fair God. You will bring judgment because you are holy, righteous, and just. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for telling us what you are going to do. Thank you for the encouragement. Thank you for the, for the example of our Lord Jesus Christ to go before us. He has gone before us, shown us the way, and that we just follow in his steps. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.